Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Alex Tabarak. Alex is an economist, writer, author, and uh, entrepreneur as well of uh, a few things, one of which is Marginal Revolution. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Alex, I want to start with a, with a question, that uh, uh, a term that Tyler has, has coined a little bit. W- what is your personal moonshot? <laughs> so uh, Tyler and I have a lot of joint uh, projects, including you know, our blog, Marginal Revolution, and our sort of online economics education platform, which is Marginal Revolution University. And our moonshot, which we both share, is to teach economics to more people in the world than anyone has ever done before in human history. I think so far we're behind Adam Smith, we're behind Paul Samuelson, uh, maybe we're behind Greg Mankey, but we're catching up. Why have you chosen this as, you, as your personal moonshot? What do you think that, that this will bring to the world? Well, first of all, I think it's actually doable. (laughs) Um, So with online education now, I mean, it is incredibly remarkable that a person such as myself can reach thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of students uh, all over the world and, you know, teach them uh, economics. So it's doable. And I think it's actually extremely useful because much of the world has yet to catch up with Adam Smith. So there is a, there's a, there's a big opportunity there to teach something extremely useful. And what do you think, if you think about the, the field of economics, what would you say is sort of the biggest contribution that the field has made to society perhaps in the last 50 years, or last 100 years, or, or what are a couple of the, the biggest ones that come to mind if there's more than one? Well, I guess one of the biggest contributions is, you know, in... 1945, 1946, there's something like eight democracies uh, in the world, and a bunch of economists get together and they found the Mont Pelerin Society, and the idea is to bring back uh, liberal economics, uh, to bring back Adam Smith and ideas like that after the tremendous decline of World War I and the Great Depression and World War II and the rise of the communist uh, states all over the world, the return of the world from the 19th century, the return to kind of an authoritarian regimes everywhere. And uh, they start to do that. Of course, they're not the, by any means, the only people responsible. I don't want to claim anything of of that nature. But just keeping the ideas of economics alive uh, has, I think, you know, led to the world we see today of great globalization, China becoming one of the most fantastic anti-poverty history stories uh, in the world, lifting billions of people out of poverty, increasing uh, peace and prosperity. So I think the, what economists have done to keep the, to extend the classical liberal ideas uh, has been enormously uh, beneficial. And, and if you look out at the next, next 50 years, where do you think the, the field of economics has yet to figure out or, or the biggest challenge or opportunity for it? Or do you think it's just more of the same? Well, I, I think kind of one of the biggest challenges is that we have kind of entered the empirical era of uh, economics uh, to, you know, to a greater extent than ever before. The credibility revolution, I think, has been very important. Uh, and along with that has come sort of behavioral economics and things of that nature. But 
with that, we've sort of lost some generalizability, right? It, it's become the case. And, you know, maybe this is, this is just the way the world is, but you do a random experiment in Kenya and it doesn't uh, generalize to what happens in India, what happens in the United States. So I, I think economics is becoming a more fractured, uh, fragmented discipline. Maybe it's more useful at the micro level, but the number of big thinkers is declining because it, it apparently <laughs> um, big thoughts just don't generalize that well, not as much as we hope that they would. Right. I sort of want to uh, propose my sort of uh, limited understanding of a, a brief history of, of how the field is as developed with, between Austrian economics, Keynesian economics, and then monetarist economics, and then get, get your response on whether that's accurate and, and how you'd respond to that. And my understanding is that Austrian economics used to be actually quite mainstream or, or just, as, just as popular. And it, to really summarize or to crudely summarize that, it would be sort of the separation of uh, money and state or, or separation of government and, and the money supply. And it, more first principles, bottoms up way of thinking about it, where uh, Keynesian, you know, Chicago School of Economics was more uh, government involved in the money supply, either through uh, the Fed in the case of uh, the monetarist or through government spending in the case of Keynesian. And that the Austrian sort of school of thought sort of lost out in the 20th century and became sort of this fringe, you know, belief. Maybe it's resurging a little bit now with with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but still, still somewhat of the fringe. Whereas Keynesian and monetarists have been duking it out. Um, and even I think Milton Friedman had this quote: "We are all Keynesians now because it, it's all you know, government involved, just via different levers, and uh, they keep going back and forth." H- how would you respond to the the, or what would you edit that, and how would you respond to that? I mean, I think that's part of it. I mean, that is, if one were to focus on monetary economics or on macroeconomics, um, that's certainly uh, one flavor of it. And, and I do agree that the oncoming world of crypto economics looks a lot like what uh, Hayek uh, was uh, talking about. So Hayek talked about the denationalization of money and uh, competing monies. And that seems to be in the the world in which we are uh, heading towards. So in a world of competing monies, I do think that it's going to be much more difficult for central banks in particular to exert control uh, over the economy. And that perhaps is one reason why the government seems to be, you know, freaking out actually about Facebook's Libra, uh, even though Libra is nothing, right? It's, it's just a, something on, it's just a white paper. <laughs> it doesn't actually exist. But already people are worried about, you know, regulating it and controlling it and things of that nature. So I, I think we're moving back, as you had suggested, to an Austrian world, at least on the monetary front. And, and what do you say, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Arnold Kling's critiques of, of macro, basically he calls it more of a, uh, and I think these are the Austrian critiques as well, uh, more of a history than a science, too grounded in materialism, not as much in culture, and that we sort of over overextend its, its implications perhaps, and that it just sort of simplifies things a bit, a bit too much? Well, it's hard to disagree, but, you know, what is, what is that not true of, um, in a sense? You know, current macroeconomics is the best. I'm not sure physics or biology, maybe, or or that they're a little bit different. Maybe. Um, I mean, doesn't string theory sort of, you know, isn't that too simplistic in some sense or tries to, you know, bring everything down to strings? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think those critiques are fine, but in the end of the day, you actually have to produce a kind of scientific model 
and a testable model and uh, bring your predictions to data. And economists are trying to, trying to do that. So I think critiques can only take us uh, so far. Uh, to put this a little bit differently, there's an awful lot of people, not just Arnold Kling by any means, there's an awful lot of people who critique economics, particularly macroeconomics, and without really understanding all that's going on in the field of economics. I mean, people are producing new papers all the time and really trying hard to grapple with these important issues. And one of the big trends in recent years has precisely been to better connect through data the micro and the macro. So the uh, census, for example, has been creating a census of all firms uh, in the economy. And for now, for the very first time, we can begin to see how every single firm essentially is changing uh, over time. So we have, so economists uh, have uh, absolutely look towards heterogeneity and look towards a more uh, empirical work and more micro-oriented work and to try to bring the uh, macroeconomic theory to connect it with microeconomics. What do you think are the biggest battles that you are facing uh, or that you are fighting within the economics field uh, itself? Are there any crosses to bear that you have relative to other uh, economists uh, about how the field should should operate or should, or should move forward? I guess one thing which has... Uh, in my in my old age, as I'm getting older, I'm uh, well, I've been shocked at what Tyler and I have called the great forgetting, and, and the great forgetting is you know in the 1970s, right? We had we had inflation, and you know we had uh, macroeconomic disturbances and uh, rent control, and you know minimum wages, and we kind of moved away from all of that. And now, for political reasons, all of these things are back in play. Uh, and, you know, even people on the right are now thinking that, oh, if only we were in control of the Fed, you know, we could do a much better job than the people that the Fed are doing, that we just need new people and we can fine-tune the economy. And this is the great forgetting that fine-tuning is a pipe dream. Um, be, precisely because the economy is a complex, dynamical system. There's no such thing as fine-tuning. At the very best, we can hope in the midst of a recession, we might hope to alleviate some of the recession through macroeconomic, fiscal, and monetary policy. But that's at the very depth of the reception of the recession. You know, at, at, at current times, there's, there's, we're in equilibrium. There's, uh, there's no magic... Uh, by which the Fed can stimulate the economy uh, today. But people still think that there is. They think, well, well, we'll fine-tune it better. And the idea that rent control is coming back, I mean, to me, this is just horrifying. And it's horrifying not even simply because rent control has bad effects. It's horrifying because it's coming back because people are just forgetting without any attempt to even deal with the critiques of the past. So it's like the new economists are going to have to learn all of the old lessons again. And I think that's a big shame. Yeah. And you mentioned it, but can you unpack a little bit? Can you talk about the credibility revolution in empirical economics? What was that and what's its significance? Yeah. So uh, I guess if you have to name three people, it'd be, you know, uh, uh, Josh Angris and uh, uh, David Card and Alan Kruger, who, who died recently. And I think that they are... Um, contenders for a Nobel Prize. Uh, you can't give it to Kruger any any longer, um, but uh, Josh Angris and uh, David Card. And the idea here was to use things like natural experiments, uh, for example. So in one of David Card's famous papers, the question was, what's the effect of immigration on uh, wages? 
And as a natural experiment, David Card used the Mariel boat lift, which was Castro saying, okay, you guys get to leave Cuba, okay? And so suddenly there's a massive exodus uh, from Cuba. And uh, in Miami, very quickly, you have a lot of new workers, right? So this kind of natural experiment is something you don't see very often. It's, it's the type of experiment which we would like to, you know, run to create a causal estimates of what's really going on. But we can't, we, we, typically we can't run it, but this is a natural version of that experiment. So he used that to kind of figure out what's going on, what's the effect of immigration on wages. And he found famously that even with a lot of new workers, wages did not decline. Uh, so that's like one example. But there are many others of, and now there's a whole bunch of new techniques uh, like another example, what's the effect of incarcerating someone versus putting them out in a halfway house or or uh, some parole, right, uh, not incarcerating them? And it's very, very difficult to figure that out because, of course, the people who are incarcerated, right, uh, they're different than the ones who are given a lesser uh, a treatment. And so how do you control for those differences? Well, one of the new techniques which has been used to do that is you look at different judges. And some judges, they're just tough on crime judges, and they're just more likely to send anyone to jail. And other judges are more, you know, soft on crime. I'm doing air quotes, but let's call that soft on crime judges. And they're just less likely to incarcerate someone. And judges are assigned to cases randomly. Okay, so that gives you, again, a kind of a natural random experiment, the random assignment of a judge. So you can look at what judges, whether you were randomly assigned a tough on crime judges judge or randomly assigned a uh, not so tough on crime and look at what happens to otherwise similar uh, criminals. And one thing we're learning from that is that incarceration um, has more costs and fewer benefits than than we thought. Yeah. One thing you've, you've uh, explored a lot is, is innovation, d- dynamism. And I'm, I'm curious if you accept sort of the Peter Thiel framing of, of the problem, which is that uh, you know, growth has significantly stalled since 1973 for, for a number of uh, different reasons. And you know, one experiment or thought experiment he has is go into any room and tell me uh, wh- why, what's different than, you know, besides cell phones than, uh, than that same room in, in 1973. Do you uh, find that accurate that that growth is significantly stalled? And uh, if so, what do we do about it? Yeah, I mean, that is the consensus view uh, in economics, that there was a a big productivity decline in the productivity growth rate beginning around 1973. Um, So that's the consensus view. What to do about it is really difficult because I don't think anyone knows uh, for sure. One way of thinking about it is maybe what's going on is just that in the sort of 1900 or 1940, post-World War II era to sort of 1973, we just got lucky. You know, we had a bunch of slow years because of the uh, Great Depression and World War II, but World War II maybe stimulated some uh, investment in R&D, and then those ideas, television, radio, jet aircraft, those ideas kind of carried us uh, with high productivity for the next 30 years. And maybe that was just kind of a random, you know, a a, a random fact of the way technology uh, operates. Now we're in the computer era. It doesn't seem to have been enough to give us a big growth spurt like we had 
you know, 45 to 73. Uh, maybe biological genetic engineering, maybe that'll do it. I'm not sure. So on, on this view, which is sort of the Tyler Cowen view, it's not so much about policy. It's about kind of deeper um, effects of technology, which we really don't understand. Like why does technology grow sometimes in some fields and not in other fields? You know, why, why do breakthroughs happen when they do? On this view, it's actually quite pessimistic because even in fields which are improving, you know, computers uh, being the obvious one, it seems like we're requiring more and more labor to do that. So you have Moore's Law, which perhaps has begun to trail off, but even if Moore's Law has not begun to trail off, the number of resources, the researchers, which we require, which we have required to keep Moore's Law going, has gone up and up and up and up. So it seems like we're having to invest more resources just to keep growth going at the same uh, rate. Uh, the same thing is true about uh, new drugs. Um, you know, I've been a big critic of the FDA, and I continue to be a, a critic of the FDA. But I also think overlying the slowdown in new drug approvals is that it's just we got a lot of uh, low-hanging fruit early on, and it seems that it has become more difficult. You need more resources to uh, produce more new drugs. What are the implications for, for some of these trends, particularly as it relates to, uh, to, to labor uh, and economic growth? So ultimately, the only way that you could increase wages is by increasing average productivity. And really, the only way you can increase average productivity in the long run, I mean, you can work harder, you know, for a little while, right? But, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day. So really, the only way you can increase average wages in the long run is to increase average productivity. And, you know, that's got to come for us. That is the economies which are at the cutting edge, uh, which are at the technological frontier. The only way we're able to do that is to push the frontier further out. You know, China is still got a lot of catch up. You know, a lot of poor countries can grow very quickly because they are adopting the scientific advances uh, from, you know, more developed economies. They're just adopting it. But if you got to invent it, it takes longer to invent than to adopt. Now, let me say something which is a more positive, uh, and that is, that is to do with China and India and the developing economies. As they come closer and closer to the frontier, rather than adopting, they have to invent on their own. And the great thing about ideas is that they are made to spread around the world. So it really doesn't matter whether an American invents a cure for cancer or a Chinese researcher in China invents a cure for cancer. We all get a cure for cancer. So if you look on a worldwide level, the number of researchers per capita uh, is increasing uh, dramatically as China and India become rich. And this is one reason why I worry about, you know, the trade war that's going on with China and, you know, foreign policy and things like that, because we have much, much more to gain from a rich China and from a rich India than we do from a poor China and a poor uh, India. And the fundamental reason is that the bigger markets are, you know, the greater the incentive to invest in research and development, and that benefits everyone. You know, if I think about, you know, I've read a lot of your work, the issues that you, you care a lot about as it relates to innovation and growth, it's, it's, it's open borders, you know, and immigration, it's, it's, it's free trade, it's, it's a more global world. You know, in the Trump era, really, some of those ideas have become you know, strongly questioned or, or, or by you know, uh, significant, you know, 
population. We sort of have a you know globalism versus nationalism uh, divide. As that's happened, have you softened your views there, or have you do you feel like you're you we are on the the right side of history and just need to convince everybody else, or is it more complicated than than we all initially thought? Maybe uh, you know a decade ago. No, I haven't softened my views. I may have become more depressed <laughs> um, <laughs> because you know as I was growing up. Um, you know, I was growing up in, in the 1970s, and just as in my teenage years as I was adopting these free market ideas, the world seemed to be moving in my direction, right? So you had the election of Reagan and Thatcher and Mulroney in, in Canada, and, you know, putting aside how good or bad they were or whatever, it seemed to be moving, you know, in sort of a pro-free market kind of uh, direction. And then later on, we had the fall of the Berlin Wall. one of the greatest events of my life to see Uh, the collapse of communism, which people thought would be around forever. And then after the collapse of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we have the opening up of China. Again, just an incredible event uh, in my life. And the amazing thing is, is that everything which we liberal free market economists said would happen actually did happen, is that the world did become much richer uh, and much more peaceful. And uh, billions of people were lifted out of poverty. And the United States continues to be, you know, an incredibly rich and vibrant and wonderful place. Now, of course, as you mentioned, there has been a backlash. Whether that backlash is permanent, you know, I mean, had the election gone, you know, towards Hillary Clinton, you know, which could have happened, uh, you know, with a flip of a coin, right? Uh, it was pretty close. Uh, and then would we, would we still can be thinking this? Um, I'm not sure. So I think the backlash, though, it definitely exists, and it's not only in the United States. I'm still hopeful that it doesn't represent something uh, permanent, but is reinvigorating perhaps some of these ideas, and hopefully uh, we we, we don't have the great forgetting, but we're stimulated to push back ourselves. Do you believe that there's some sort of right side of history? Not necessarily, you know, it could be either, either morally and or, uh, just gonna win, <laughs> and that's you know uh, liberalism basically, and that that takes shape both economically and via democracy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's obviously it's a a hard question which a person uh, even living a normal lifespan of ninety years, right? Uh, you know, knock on wood. I hope I make it that long. It's going to be very difficult uh, to tell, right? So. And you're biased by the portion of history that you do see, right? So I definitely think it could be the case we could have much worse uh, events in the future. Um, I think a nuclear war, a nuclear exchange is possible, and the world could close down. Um, There could be a, a biological, the creation of biological weapons, and that could cause, you know, people to close up, shut the borders, and so forth. So all of these things, I think, are possible. Um, On the other hand, uh, it's very hard to see us returning to slavery, for example. Um, I think it's just not economically efficient. Maybe that's the reason why. But it just also seems that there's no moral justification for it, even though it lasted for thousands and thousands of years. It was considered completely normal. So I do think we have made some moral progress. I think, uh, you know, the rights of women, I think, again, that there has been moral progress there, and it's going to be very hard to reverse on that score. But on some of these other scores, I think we haven't made as much deep progress as we would like. Certainly, I'm not expecting open borders anytime soon, 
uh, even though, you know, people claim, you know, the Democrats are in favor of open borders, which, of course, from my perspective is crazy. Uh, nobody uh, except a few crazy libertarian types like myself is in favor of open borders. And, and why aren't they in favor of open borders? Well, I, I think there's a deep bias in our brains to be fearful of strangers. Uh, this is, goes back to the evolutionary stable equilibrium on the African savanna or whatever. And you, we grew up in, in tribes. And I think that reptilian part of our brain is uh, still uh, very natural for us to revert to that on first instance. Now, what has happened is that slowly we have increased the, our moral circles. We've expanded beyond the tribe, you know, to the city, to the city-state, and then, in fact, to the nation. And nations are actually pretty big, and it's, pretty, it's kind of amazing that we think of our fellow Americans. That's kind of unprecedented that we could think about 300 million people as being part of a, a coherent group that we share some uh, moral values, that we are willing to recognize one another as moral human beings, even at the nation-state level. So I do think it's quite possible that, you know, we increase our moral circles uh, even further to the entire world, um, but we're certainly not there yet. I, I do want to get d- deeper into uh, immigration, but first let me, let me step back and ask uh, something about growth. You know, there, growth is always, there's a quote that says along the lines of, growth is always good except when it's a tumor. And I'm curious what you say to sort of the, the argument, I, I think proposed in Jeffrey West's book, uh, Scale, that long-term economic growth or long-term sustainable economic growth is somewhat of an oxymoron in that it's, it's not sustainable <laughs> long-term that there, there, there will be limits eventually. What do you say to that argument? How long is eventually, <laughs> um, you know, what are we talking about? Uh, 50 years, a hundred years, thousand years. Uh, nobody ever, you know, th- this argument just seems sort of ridiculous to me. Uh, if you don't specify some, some time frame. You know, I suppose there's going to be the heat death of the universe at some point. So, yes, uh, there will be uh, an end to growth. But I don't see any, in the long run, I don't, I don't see any natural reason why the, the space of combinations and permutations is so large that we've only barely scratched the surface of the ways of, combina- of combining, you know, elements and I think that uh, nature uh, will continue to surprise us. I see only today that uh, physicists have managed to reverse time <laughs> for a very short amount of time and just for like a particle or something. I don't understand it. Um, you know, that this quantum physics says, yeah, you can actually reverse time. Well, listen, if you could reverse time, uh, I think it's a little bit early to say that uh, we're not going to be richer uh, in the future. Let's get into some of the thoughts on immigration. Make the the bull case for 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 totally open borders, and uh, and then and then also address the, the counter uh, cases. Let's steel man those cases. The most uh, you know uh, enlightened uh, counter cases that are not part of the reptilian from the reptilian part of their brain, but from you know uh, reasoned arguments. Right. So I, I mean, I think the basic case for open borders is very simple: is that why should uh, where you are born limit where you can travel. Uh, you know, we all are uh, members of the species and we all are living on planet Earth. And by what right is there to erect these artificial barriers? And not simply to erect artificial barriers, but to man them with guns and machine guns and barbed wire. 
and uh, to say you cannot move, you cannot walk about, you cannot move with your feet uh, to imprison people. Uh, this seems just uh, wrong. Um, it's very difficult to kind of justify, I think, uh, throwing up these uh, violent, coercive barriers when people just want to voluntarily interact with other people, right? It's not like, you, you, you know, people are coming over with, you know, the guns and the machine guns. You know, people just want to come over for jobs and they want to come over to interact and to, you know, get married and uh, to uh, peacefully engage in exchange. And this seems like something which uh, the state should not interfere with. This is a, a right to movement and a right to association and a right to free exchange with other people. So I think that's the kind of very basic moral uh, argument for open borders. Perhaps the best kind of counter argument is one from my uh, colleague, uh, Garrett Jones. And what Garrett worries about is that if we let in, and I, I don't want to, let, let me preface this by saying I, I may get this wrong, so, so, so th this is what I understand his argument to be, but, and other people's arguments to be, but don't, don't take these words as Garrett's words. But he worries, as I understand it, that if we let in too many other people, we will destroy the very reasons that people want to come here, right? So uh, it's a kind of a cultural argument that if we let in too many uh, other people, who don't appreciate Western classical liberal free market values, whatever you want to call it, or whatever the reason why we're rich and happy uh, today uh, here in the West, that it'll destroy and undermine the very reason that people want to move. So I think that's not a crazy argument, but I don't see any evidence for it uh, either. Um, it seems to me that immigrants are some of the most pro-American uh, people uh, that there are. And also, I think this argument, it, it just proves much too much, because if you believe in liberty, then you just believe in liberty, and uh, it's up to you to change people's, uh, change people's minds, to interact with them, to uh, voluntarily uh, debate and reason and come to some conclusions uh, with them. And it's wrong to simply exclude them. Another way of putting this, you could apply these exact same arguments to free speech. You could say, well, we're only going to have free speech, but for just for Milton Friedman and for Friedrich Hayek, but not for Paul Krugman, uh, because Paul Krugman is undermining, you know, uh, the great, the, you know, classical liberal ideas. So we can't, we can't afford free speech. I think that would be a very wrong uh, argument for exactly the same reasons that I don't think Paul Krugman or Karl Marx should be shut up and should be uh, prevented from using the printing presses. I don't think we should prevent, you know, even Karl Marx from moving to, you know, the United States should Karl Marx decide that he would like to do that. And, and let's say that people weren't persuaded by, by the moral arguments. I, I assume that you also would argue it on, on practical grounds too. So, so let's address, you know, the argument that it would lower American wages, the argument that it would lead to more crime just based on sheer congestion. You know, they're, they're, you know, free speech, you can have, unlimited voices on the internet, but you, you can't have unlimited people in America, although perhaps you, you, you might say you, you could. So why don't we address some of those arguments and also just hypothesize of what you think would happen if, if we did have open borders? Sure. So I think the remarkable fact is that not only is this the moral thing to do, but it is primarily in our interest as well, even in the interest of the uh, people who live here uh, currently. 
the bulk of the economic literature, for example, finds that more immigration raises the wages of current citizens. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. This is where maybe a little economics is a bad thing because you think, right, that, well, a greater supply of apples pushes down the price of apples, therefore a greater supply of labor pushes down the price of labor, which is true if you're talking about a limited market, like the market for apples or the market for, you know, labor in a particular industry at a particular place at a particular time. But when we are talking about general equilibrium, about macro uh, level uh, arguments, this doesn't go through. And the reason it doesn't go through is because when you have a greater supply of labor, that there's also a greater demand for goods and services. So you're increasing demand at the same time as you're increasing supply. Moreover, when you take somebody from a poor country, you know, from a, a Haiti or a, a Guatemala or something like that, uh, and you move them to the United States. Uh, well, what happens, their wages in Haiti or Guatemala might be two and a half thousand, three thousand, four thousand dollars a year. You move them to the United States, on average, their wages are going up by a factor of five, by a factor of five. So that's of tremendous value, of course, to the immigrant. That's why the immigrants want to move here, because simply by moving, they have a much higher standard of living. But it also means that world wealth is going up by a tremendous amount. Okay, you've taken someone who was earning $2,500 a year, and now they're earning $20,000 a year, and so they're demanding a lot more goods and services. So you have increased worldwide uh, wealth. Uh, indeed, it's been suggested that if we had open borders, as best as we could tell, that world GDP would triple, uh, would double or triple. Now, this is not just a one-time measure. It's gross domestic product. It's a yearly measure. So we could double world GDP. There is no other economic policy which has anything like that, the potential to increase GDP, world GDP, at anything like that level other than immigration. When you're making the whole world richer, most people in the world are going to be richer as well. Okay. So when you're talking about gains of that magnitude, uh, it's much easier to see that almost everyone is going to be considerably better off. What about congestion, crime, or, or just you know, actual just limitations of having so many people? I mean, I think most of these issues take care of themselves. You know, congestion, people, you know, go into cities and, and yes, some cities become congested um, and, you know, housing prices go up and so people move elsewhere and you have other cities. But, you know, the United States is not a densely populated uh, country. You know, we could easily have a dozen or more more cities, you know, with 10 million people. We could have a dozen or more New Yorks. And that wouldn't, you know, create huge congestion problems uh, in the United States. Uh, there's plenty of room for more big cities. We're not anything like uh, China. So, you know, I don't see that the world is all that congested. Um, or Canada. I mean, we're not just talking about the United States. You know, there's plenty of room in, in Canada. Uh, and maybe that's a great place to go with global warming. Uh, you know, it's going to be good for Canada. And maybe it's a good idea that people maybe from Bangladesh, uh, where global warming is uh, increasing sea levels and is going to destroy uh, a land, uh, maybe moving them to Canada is actually a good idea. Some people say things like that some of the problems caused uh, in Europe, for example, are because 
they have too many immigrants and their crime and, and, you know, cultural differences as it relates to that. And also, or and the flip side that some, you know, smaller places like Norway or, uh, or maybe, I don't know if they bump in Singapore here, things go so smoothly because they have a relatively homogenous population. Do you think both of these claims are, are just incorrect or unfounded? I don't see a lot of evidence uh, for them. Now it is true that if you're going to have a lot of immigrants, there's a lot of stupid things you can do, and you, Europe is doing some stupid things. Uh, not everywhere, but for example, there's crazy things like you invite immigrants in and you say that they're immediately uh, available, they're immediately eligible uh, to go on welfare, but they're not eligible to get a job. Now, that is insane, right? I mean, that to me is, is crazy, and yet a, a lot of countries have rules uh, like that. The American system has been much, much better uh, on this ground, is that we're all about, yeah, hey, go get a job, <laughs> you know, right? And I would be perfectly happy with saying, um, yes, uh, you come to uh, this country and you're not eligible for uh, welfare for five years or 10 years or something like that. So, uh, you know, go get a job. Um, but you are eligible to get a job anywhere, any place, anytime you want. Any job is open to you. Um, that is a much a better way of integrating uh, immigrants into a into an economy. So it's not that immigrants are magically make things better. You do need the right institutions. And with the right institutions, which the United States is particularly good at, this is one of the U.S.'s comparative advantages, okay, is that the U.S. can accept immigrants and has had uh, relative to the rest of the world, very good policies for integrating immigrants and for getting them into the job market. So there's no magic that, that immigration everywhere is going to be uh, beneficial, but it is beneficial when you have the right institutions. To, to me, it seems obvious that you know, letting high-skilled immigrants is, is just a no-brainer uh, for the economy. But I'm curious if you would always have sort of a more is better you know, open border stance uh, on, on the, on the quote-unquote, air quotes, low-skilled. If yes, I mean, if I was another country, especially not an ally of the U.S., wouldn't I just free my prisoners uh, or free people who are in jails and just send them to the, to the U.S.? And I don't, I don't think you'd argue that that would be a good thing for us, would you? Yeah, no, so no. So, I mean, Castro did that, right? <laughs> so it's pretty clever of him. <laughs> what a bastard. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the Statue of Liberty says, you know, send us your, your, your poor, your tired, your huddled masses. It doesn't say send us your criminals. And yeah, so I'm fine with, you know, maybe a border is a good place to, you know, check somebody's, you know, ID and, you know, see if they're a criminal or something. But, but look, so my view is very simple. It's that people should be People should have the liberty to move about the world much as they move about U.S. states. I mean, when you move from Virginia to, you know, California or from California to Massachusetts, okay, uh, there's no big border there, right? You know, they sometimes will check your fruit, right? And, you know, something of that nature. Uh, but there's no big borders. And um, I think that would be fine. And to handle crime, I mean, we do have this problem, right? You know, like in the Bruce Springsteen song where, you know, the guy crosses over the state border and the state trooper, you know, can't follow him over the border, right? So we do, we do have this problem a little bit and we get around it by having a national system where we kind of uh, share information about who's a criminal and so forth. And, you know, we can do the same thing with other countries as well, indeed, as we do do. So I don't think this is actually a big, a big problem. 
you you've studied crime quite a bit. What do you think is is uh, the most underappreciated uh, or underexplored uh, element as it, as it relates to crime? What do we misunderstand about it? So I think the big mistake that the U.S. has made is to focus on uh, police. Excuse me, to focus on prisons rather than uh, police. So if you look at um, other countries and the ratio of police spending to prison spending. Uh, other countries, they're not simply soft on crime. Uh, other countries spend more on police relative to prisons, and the United States spend more on prisons relative to police. And I think that's been a mistake. Now, for, from one perspective, it kind of makes sense, because if you have very high expected punishments, right? So if you steal something, you're going to go to prison for, you know, 10 years, let's say, okay? Well, that should decrease the incentive to be a thief, right? And it should cost you, in theory, very little because you don't actually have to imprison people. Because if people are rational, they see, oh, the punishment is really high. Therefore, I'm not going to be a thief. Therefore, there are very few thieves and you don't actually have to use the punishment. That was the theory. That was kind of Gary Becker's uh, rational model of crime theory. But the way I see things, is that we shouldn't think about criminals as being perfectly rational. In fact, criminals in many ways are like children. They are uncivilized. Uh, they haven't learned the rules, and they don't understand the connection between uh, causes and consequences. They don't see the future well enough to correctly predict, you know, the uh, what are the consequences of their actions, okay? So... When you have criminals who are of that type, you know, low, very high time preference, they want stuff now, they don't think about the future, then they're not going to be dissuaded by a big future prison sentence. It's just not real to them, okay? They're only thinking about the present. They're not thinking, they're not planning ahead. They're not weighing costs and benefits. They're not thinking about future punishments. And when you have criminals like that and you have very high expected punishments, then what actually happens is you get a lot of people in jail. You get a lot of people in prison. And that's a situation we have in the United States, a lot of people in prison. Now, my view is not, again, soft on crime. My view says uh, we actually ought to have many more police. We're under-policed um, in the United States. Calculations which John Click and I have done suggest that a, a doubling of the number of police in the United States would easily pass a benefit cost uh, test. And if you have more police on the street, right, more visible police, then even a high time preference criminal, they see that the police are right there. They see that they're going to be caught very quickly, right? So it's easier to dissuade these childlike criminals or these high time preference criminals by putting them in timeout right away, like getting them right away. You have very quick punishment. The punishment can be much less, but it needs to be quick. It needs to be quick and certain. So uh, if you have punishment which is more certain and which is quicker, then it doesn't have to be so extreme. And this is exactly, by the way, how what the uh, parental experts recommend, right? So when you're a parent, you're told, how should you punish your child, right? The way the optimal form of punishment is not, well, ignore it most of the time, you know, pretend it's not happening, you know, don't worry about it most of the time. And then occasionally, right, give them a really harsh punishment, okay? No, 
what the experts recommend is when a child is misbehaving, put them into timeout very quickly, right? Make sure that they understand what is the cause of their punishment, and then they learn, okay, I shouldn't do that. And then when you do that, uh, you don't have to punish them very much. And by these experts, I assume you don't mean Brian Kaplan, because my understanding that he is, uh, doesn't think parenting really makes a difference? No, 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 no. So that's not Brian's view. So Brian's, Brian's view is he thinks parenting doesn't make a difference for, you know, IQ or happiness or um, for the long run um, outcomes. You know, you can't turn your child into a Mozart and you probably can't make them happier in their life, you know, by your parenting, you know, techniques within, within a reasonable range, right? But he certainly thinks you can, there's bad parenting and there's good parenting. Um, it's just that it doesn't affect these long run kind of uh, outcomes. Um, but it certainly may, you could have, you know, unruly kids and who make you and them miserable. Uh, one thing you've written for, for a long time about before, before it really got popular is, is uh, charter cities, pri- private cities. Right. If your utopia is some version of basically like a hundred Singapore's or and not that they all look the same, but that, you know, many, many, uh, private cities that you can easily ch- choose between um, and that basically nearly all, if not all of the, the functions we think about, you know, being in the public sphere, uh, like police, for example, are, are, are privatized. Is, is that true? Or what would you edit to that? What is your utopia? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a utopia uh, in the following sense. Uh, we just have a lot more experimentation. So I think one of the things which we're, we're not so good at, particularly in the United States, when we're becoming less good at, we're becoming more federalized, right? So we're moving away from the laboratories of democracy, uh, the idea that states will have different policies, because every big policy becomes federal. Federal law has become much more important. It dominates, you know, compared to what the founders wanted, which was, you know, 50, uh, well, you know, 13, but then 50 later on, 50 states. You know, I could have easily could have 100 states or 150 states, you know, more like uh, Switzerland. And yeah, that could be on the city level uh, as well. So I'd like to see much more experimentation. Some of them, I have no doubt, would be horrible places, right? But though, so long as then you have open borders, right, between these cities, people get to move about, get to vote with their feet. I think overall, the system itself would uh, evolve in a unexpected, but a, a, uh, uh, an interesting and a beneficial uh, way. I don't know which way it would evolve. I don't know what would win out, but I would like to see many, many more experiments in governance structures. Would you go as far as that the, the uh, David Friedman, perhaps, to say that you know, all government functions would be better off if, if privatized, like law, police... You know, on a bad day, you know, when I have to pay taxes or when uh, the government has uh, done something particularly annoying, um, I lean uh, in that direction. But the reason why I wouldn't call myself an anarchist uh, uh, like David Friedman, however, is just I, I'd really like to see um, more evidence um, that this can work. You know, he talks about, you know, Iceland and under, the, you know, the, the saga during the saga ages and so forth. And that's just not good, em- good enough uh, for me. I would like to see sort of modern developed economies working uh, in this way. So I think about the direction, the vector in which we should move. And as long as you have the right vector, it might not be perfectly pointing in the direction, which I think is ideal, but as long as the vector is going in the right direction and not in the wrong direction, I'm in favor of it. So uh, I, I don't want to argue about end states and, you know, limited government versus, you know, anarchic government. 
um, until we get the government, you know, out of deciding what a pizza should be. <laughs> so we have a long way to go on that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about Libra earlier. I was watching the hearings where uh, AOC was asking uh, Dave Marcus, head of Libra, whether uh, he thought the currency was a public good. And he, uh, he said, it's not up to me to decide. And, and so I'm curious what you think the relationship between, uh, are there anything that, any things that are sort of inherently public goods, i.e. shouldn't be left up to the markets, but should be led up to you know, some external governing body? What, what do you think the role of government is, the sort of the tensions between centralization and decentralization, the, the recipe for a great government? And I know there's a lot of questions, but lastly, whether, whether you think USA's model is inherently better than, China, than the Chinese model or if they're so just trade-offs. Right. Yeah. So let, let me say uh, just another word on the David Friedman thing for just for a moment, and then I'll get to those other questions as well. Uh, on the David Friedman, one interesting thing about that is that we are getting much, much closer to kind of a David Friedman world in the online sphere. And we are living much more in these online worlds than we used to. So you think about the amount of time people spend in, you know, EVE Online or in um, these you know, massively multiplayer you know, role games, uh, World of Warcraft, right? And people do get to choose between EVE Online and World of Warcraft, and you know, real money is being spent. Some of these virtual economies have a GDP which is higher than some real economies. So that kind of world in which we get to choose uh, what laws govern us and it, it, it's not as unrealistic as one might imagine once you think about the online world. Now, coming back to... It's interesting because the online world, in, in some sense, that's very true. In another sense, it is uh, you know, dominant, even more centralized. Uh, like, you know, Facebook is bigger than any country, you know, relative to the online world, is, uh, is like a global, it's almost like the equivalent of having a global government, you know, Facebook or Google. And so in some ways, this doesn't refute anything you were saying, but it's become even more centralized. Yeah, so that's a good, that's a very good point. And it is a question, I think, how much we want to uh, communicate with others, right? And what are the benefits of communicating with others, which is going to push us into these larger worlds? And how much is uh, fixed costs? So I think Facebook, right, is able to spend this huge amounts of money on creating better services and creating all their services and fixed costs because they have so many people. And it's going to be, I, I agree, there's some challenges there of how well smaller communities in the online world can compete with these bigger uh, communities. Um, I think it's a bit early to say. So, you know, Facebook's dominance, I don't think that we should think that that is a universal. Um, it might be. Um, you know, that's certainly possible. But uh, I wouldn't at all be surprised if we fragment more into Facebook for economists. It, it won't be run by Facebook, but, you know, Facebook, into, it, whether we fragment into smaller communities in the same way that, you know, news sources have uh, fragmented and Twitter is uh, fragmented. I think that may happen as well. So on the larger question of public goods, yeah, I mean, I do think that there are, I, I don't deny the existence of public goods. And one reason to have fairly large cities is that you can internalize um, more of these public goods. You know, I did study uh, a city in India, uh, Gurgaon, uh, which is one of these cities which went from village land 30 years ago, and now you see gleaming skyscrapers and apartments 
and all of the you know major firms in the world you know they have IT uh, is located there and you have golf courses and so forth so on the surface it looks very uh, modern but there are in certain ways uh, when you look behind the curtain it's not modern at all so for example you have these gleaming apartment buildings and the sewage does not go into central, uh, a central sewage uh, system. Uh, instead, it goes, it's pumped into trucks. And the trucks come and they dump the sewage, you know, sometimes on some piece of land outside the city, right? And why is that? Well, it's because it's grown up, the city has grown up completely privately. So the building is private, there's private security, you know, there's, private, a fire, there's a private fire department. Um, so it's very libertarian in some respects. But each one of these uh, apartments and uh, buildings and zones, they haven't been able to coordinate together well enough to produce a centralized sewage system or a centralized electricity system, which would be much more efficient. So a lot of them are still using diesel, which is more polluting, instead of having a central uh, electricity plant. And I was surprised that they had not yet been able to get together to make these deals. You know, the Coase theorem sort of broke down. So if you want a city like that, I think you do need at some level a central planner of the city to at least allow you to construct some of those public goods. Totally. And what do you make of the, like, what is going to determine whether U.S. or, or China uh, pulls, pulls ahead moving forward? And what, what do you suspect might happen? So I think one of the, the good things here is that the United States especially since the decline of the Soviet Union, um, has been pretty complacent uh, in the world. That is, it is thought of itself as the world leader, the dominant economy, the dominant uh, ruler of the seas, and so forth. And China is challenging that. And competition can be a good thing, even among uh, nations. So uh, I think when we begin to see China experimenting with new ways of you know, producing uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, for example, or China is investing an awful lot in uh, I- genetics and IQ research, okay? And if China finds a way to increase people's IQs, uh, well, you know, we may have to follow, and I actually think that would be a good thing. You know, the, the hullabaloo we had recently about the Chinese researcher who had done genetic engineering on, on the kids, uh, in some ways, you know, it's, it's frightening, but in other ways, I think it's good that we're going to have this kind of competition. So I, I think we have something to gain from competing with China. I think China ultimately will get richer, but I think they cannot, they're not going to become as rich as the United States. It's going to be very difficult to do that with a more kind of authoritarian um, a country, which doesn't allow the free exchange of ideas. I think that is going to uh, limit them. They may be considerably richer than today. They may still continue to catch up for a while. But I do think that there is something to be said for the free exchange of scientific ideas and so forth, and that that um, is an advantage which the United States has, in addition to allowing more immigrants in the United States. So I think that's an advantage we have as well. Do you have a framework for how to think about centralization versus decentralization as it relates to to, to governance in terms of the, de- the, the desired balance or, or when we might want centralization versus when we, we might want increased decentralization? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a deep question, and um, I don't have a trustworthy uh, framework, which is one reason that I do like to see uh, experiments. Um, and, you know, having multiple, more states, you know, laboratories of democracy, as I said, or more cities uh, running experiments, I think would be useful and would give us more information. And, and you have written a bit about the private provision of, of public goods. Are, are, there, uh, are there any specific experiments you'd like to, uh, if you could do sort of requests for experiments, what might you like to see people experiment with? Well, so uh, one of my own uh, pieces of research was on what I call the dominant assurance uh, contract, which is a way, uh, as you said, of producing um, private, uh, producing public goods uh, privately. And there's been some interest in this in the kind of the cryptocurrency field and so forth. And I have with some colleagues been running some experiments on this, which would be at the very minimum a way of making Kickstarter more efficient, but could also be a way of producing especially local public goods uh, using private means. So, and we have actually been running lab experiments. Um, and I hope to see when we get that paper out that uh, Kickstarter or other, uh, other of these crowdsourcing uh, 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 platforms might adopt the dominant assurance uh, contract to improve their efficiency. So I, I hope that idea will spread in the world. Peter Thiel also has this, this concept that there is a sort of trade-off in some sense between globalization and innovation, that innovation is, is zero to one and globalization is, is copying. And that the more we focus on globalization, sort of copying, the, the less we focus on creating new things from scratch. Does that sound accurate to you or how do you respond to that? Yeah, I don't see that. So what I see is that as countries become richer, they invest much more in expanding the technological frontier. So again, if you look at China and India, historically, they've had far fewer people, researchers, people whose, whose main job is to create new ideas. They've had far fewer researchers per capita than in Japan, the United States, or some of the more advanced economies. And as they reach the technological frontier, they invest much more in education, much more in universities, and much more in engineers and pure scientists. And that is what uh, generates a lot of uh, new ideas. So I think these two parts actually go hand in hand. Globalization makes people richer, and richer people focus more of their uh, wealth on creating new ideas. And what do you say to the, the Eric Weinstein argument about uh, on immigration where it basically says immigration is used sort of as like a political pawn to redistribute uh, you know, money from one group to, to another and that they're not really interested in market-based solutions for, for, for immigration. Is the part of that sound accurate to you or what, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, economic, the, the, the empirical evidence is just that that is wrong, is just that the primary effect of immigration is to raise wages, not to lower wages, which is not to say that particularly for low-skilled workers in the United States, if you have more low-skilled workers, um, yes, you may, you know, even um, George Borjas, who is kind of the most, among economists, he's the most severe critic of immigration. And he finds that over 20, 25 years of increased immigration from Latin America that that reduced the wages of low-skilled workers in the United States by like 8%, okay? Which I, I don't want to, you know, be heartless and say 8% is nothing, but, you know, it's not, it's not huge. It's not a huge effect. And that is for only one class of low-skilled workers. So for most workers, it raised their wages. And, you know, Borjas's uh, estimates 
are not unchallenged. I'm only taking the very worst case uh, scenario. Overall, by having more immigration, there's just much more wealth, much more wealth to go around. And that can benefit everyone. I'm curious if you think we should care at all about uh, population and demographic transitions, either within countries or just broadly. Uh, and I think you know the trends that some people might be concerned about are, let's say, a country like Israel, where, where you accept a certain amount of immigrants, and you know Israelis might have less kids than some of these other groups. You know, should Israel be concerned about that at all, or, 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 or embrace that? And then broadly, if you accept the trend that wealthy people have less. Your fertility and income are correlated. Should we care at all that uh, that certain groups are having more kids than others? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, people ask me about Israel. I don't understand what the what the, what the you know you know people ask this a lot. But look, Israel is you know it's been a problem area in the world for two thousand years, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not going to solve that. And you know, my you know, I, I'll I will be the first to admit it. The first to admit that, uh, you know, leave that to somebody else. I'm not going to solve that uh, uh, problem. Fortunately, that's not very many people. Right? It's it's not actually, you know, unless you really think Armageddon is coming, uh, you know, when Israel does something, uh, it's not actually that important a place, okay? Uh, it's not as important as people imagine it to be, and I'm not going to solve that. Uh, on this other issue about... It's the sort of idiocracy, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't want to say that, but um, yeah. I, I mean, so the world has undergone very severe changes from the evolutionary stable equilibrium in a very short period of time, right? Uh, so we have moved from a situation with no birth control to one with you know, very effective birth control. We always had some birth control, right? But now we've got very effective um, birth control. And that is, not, that is unprecedented. And that is not something which people uh, adapt to uh, right away, right? And so we have seen, you know, some studies suggest, I don't know how, if it's, if it's a, you know, well-founded, you know, but certainly as a country gets richer, the uh, population, the uh, fertility rate uh, tends to go down. Although a part of that is because, you, you know, a lot of kids, in a poor country, a lot of kids die before the age of five. Part of the fertility rate does not actually turn into a higher population rate. However, I think the bigger question is, will evolution win out? And my, my suspicion is that it probably will, is that for selfish gene type reasons and for selfish meme type reasons that groups which can both maintain, you know, high standards of education, high investment in human capital, and a lot of kids that they're going to dominate. They're going to dominate in the long run. So in, in other words, I think the Mormons are going to rule, <laughs> okay? You know, I think the fact that Mitt Romney did not win, uh, that was a... Uh, <laughs> That was a random fluke, <laughs> but I think Mitt Romney in the, in the long run actually will win. You know, he has like 30 kids or 30 grandkids, <laughs> you know, something like that. But uh, um, I think that uh, rich guy, highly educated kids, you know, integrated from all over the world. Um, I think that meme uh, will, will come back. There's no reason why rich people shouldn't want more kids. So I think that's just a cultural quirk of our era and will not last. Right. Tyler Cowen, of course, is a huge fan of Mormonism. Are you as well? 
<laughs> yeah, not enough to become one. Um, you know, I send them away when they come to my door, just like everybody else. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, if, if I were to come back in, uh, you know, a few hundred years, um, one of my predictions would be that Mormonism is a, a bigger religion than that it was that it is today. This is, I talked to him about you know cultural ways to uh, promote economic growth, and he's a big believer, of course, in, in promoting religions, you know, like like Mormonism. And I've asked him, you know, why couldn't you just have a religion that was about economic growth head on, like direct? And he, he said people would just never go for that. That uh, it's not in, you know inspiring enough, or, or I don't say it's inspiring enough, uh, intuitive enough. Uh, you know, something that people could could really relate to on on a personal level. Uh, do you have any d- different thoughts on that, or, or do you think that it is a great way to, uh, to promote economic growth? Yeah, no, I I agree with Tyler on that. You know, as I once said, only economists will go to the barricades for economic efficiency. <laughs> right. On the on the trade front, you know, it's interesting. You you know, going back to Peter Thiel for a second, he he's talked about he's praised Trump for for renegotiating some of the trade deals because he, he thinks we didn't actually have free trade and we had these unfair deals. And, and now we're going to have, you know, m- more fair deals. Do you disagree with him there? Or, or what are your thoughts on, on what we should do regarding trade? Yeah, I mean, there is this, there is this view, which I think is crazy, that uh, Trump is playing, you know, three-dimensional or 12-dimensional chess. And, you know, <laughs> he really is a free trader and it's going to lead to a better world eventually. And to me, I just see it's a disaster. We're harming ourselves. We're harming China. I don't see, I mean, if you, if you were really playing 12-dimensional chess and you wanted a better deal from China, then you certainly would have signed the TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, which was a deal between the United States and Asian countries other than China. So that was the way to put pressure on China if that's what you were really concerned, concerned about. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're flailing. We are becoming subject to these whims uh, and, you know, tirades. And uh, I I don't see any grand plan behind this other than to try and get reelected by appealing to people's baser emotions. It seems to work, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about inequality. Do you you agree that wealth inequality has been rising in the last 30, 40 years? And if yes, is that a problem? And if yes, what should we do about that? There is a consensus that uh, inequality has been rising. It's not rising as much as the highest estimates, which are often the ones most talked about in the media from, you know, Gabriel Zucman and, and people like that. Um, I think that, that has been an overestimate. But, but you know, the pioneered this area. And uh, I think, yes, inequality uh, is rising. Is it a problem? I don't think it's a huge problem. Um, I do think that uh, we're in a funny era, which probably will not last, where um, more markets are kind of winner-take-all markets, and there has been a globalization, you know, has made it easier to sell to everybody in the world. So, you know, the way I talk about it, you know, so like, is J.K. Rowling, you know, a better author than Shakespeare uh, or than Tolkien? You know, maybe not, right? I don't want to claim that. So why does she earn so much more money? You know, J.K. Rowling is the first author in the history of the world to earn a billion dollars from her writings, right? And, well, it's because Shakespeare um, couldn't even sell books, right? Shakespeare was 
uh, limited basically to how many people he could fit into the Globe uh, Theater uh, on a night. So that limits your earnings regardless of how good a writer you are. Um, Tolkien could sell books, but not so much in other languages and in other countries, and he didn't have the film networks, and he didn't have uh, the toys and all of the other ways in which J.K. Rowling has magnified uh, her wealth using globalized markets. So, um, I, so I think there is, because we live in a globalized world, there is for the very first time in history a opportunity to sell something to 7 billion people, right? Um, and that's part of what uh, I introduced when, we, when you asked me what is my you know, moonshot, is to teach economics to 7 billion people. So, um, you know, I'm hoping for a penny from them too, right? I think the technology, the way the technology has changed, has driven some of this inequality. Is it that important in, in, the, in, the, in the big picture? Uh, probably not, um, because most people in the world are getting richer. Poverty, the, especially the, the worst kind of abject poverty, has been decreasing at faster rates than ever before in human history. It's much better to be a human being today than at any time in the past. So I think on these big issues, you know, infant life expectancy and uh, just ability to uh, live a decent life, uh, these are all increasing. And I think that's much more important than the fact that there are some really rich people. Well, it is interesting. You, You saw with things like Occupy, you know, Occupy Wall Street, that we don't seem wired to be able to appreciate the fact that even though we are richer than we ever have been before, if there are people out there who are getting richer faster than we're getting richer, that maybe there'll be a revolution at some point. Possibly though. Um, I don't see, well, there, we'll yeah, go ahead. That, that capitalism and democracy are, are long-term uh, unsustainable or, you know, can't work together that, that people just vote for more redistribution. You know, people were saying that since the 19th century, right. Uh, and even earlier that people would just vote for yeah, more redistribution. Of course, even voting for more redistribution doesn't necessarily get you all that far if uh, there's an incentive effect, right? So even somebody who wants to maximize you know, their take, they may not want to increase taxes uh, all that high if there's a big incentive effect on you know, making the money, right? Uh, there's a Laffer curve, in other words, for redistribution. Um, so that's one limit. And I just think actually that the, the model of voting which people have when they make these claims, sort of the self-interested voter that people on welfare will always vote for more welfare, it's just actually not true. And one reason, paradoxically in, in a certain sense, or ironically, is that, you know, each vote matters so little, right, that voting your self-interest is sort of pointless. And actually what people do is they vote their ideology. So there's a much bigger room for ideology. So I think if people, you know, classical liberals and uh, people are doing their job uh, and winning out in the world of ideas, that democracy and capitalism are not only compatible, um, but they naturally go together because at a fundamental level, democracy is a way of limiting the government, right? So democracy puts a clamp on uh, what the government can do because you can always throw the bums out. And this is why around the world, Democracy is not a very good way of making decisions, but if democracy prevents a government from killing its own citizens, 
the way that happened in China and the way that happened uh, in the Soviet Union to the kulaks and so forth. And if democracy prevents its own a government from ignoring starvation among its own citizens, which uh, Amartya Sen suggests is the case, and I believe him, uh, then actually democracy is a pretty good thing to have, and I wouldn't want to get rid of it, though I might want to, you know, limit its scope. Do you think in the next 50 to 100 years we will have more uh, global democracy than we have now, or will we have less? And when you say limited scope, would, would that sort of imply that you think that we should still have it, but, but just have less than we have today? Yeah, I think we could certainly, uh, normatively, I, I, I think I would like us to have less than we have today. I think we just decide too many things collectively. It's just ridiculous that whatever the issue you know, happens to be, we have to have a collective choice, a collective decision and discussion about what should be done. And I am more of the flavor, let individuals decide, you know, leave it to the market, leave it to individual choice, uh, leave it to individuals making different decisions, okay? But, you know, ha- have many different choices. Um, so I would like to kind of limit the scope of democracy. Do I think that will happen? I don't, I don't know. It could Yeah, I I don't have a big prediction there. I I do think that, you know, for a very long time in the developed world, people looked around and they looked at the rich countries. And the rich countries were all democracies. And they said, oh, that's what I want. Okay. Uh, That's what, that must be the secret sauce. And it turns out that democracy is not the secret sauce to riches. Uh, The democracy, the, the, the democratic countries are rich mostly because they started along the capitalist path earlier. So if you want riches, you really want capitalism. Democracy is a useful uh, tool to prevent the worst excesses of government from happening, but it doesn't uh, maximize you know, wealth in any sense or growth. We really want a large chunk of capitalism. Is, is, it, really, is it just a coincidence that democracy found capitalism sooner than um, sort of uh, you know, a, a, a more centralized government found capitalism sooner? It seems to be. You know, all of the best, the, the best economics uh, research indicates that democracy at the very best might increase um, GDP by, you know, 20% over 25 years, okay, uh, which is really small, which I think is small. It's small certainly when you compare the average democracy to the average democracy to the average non-democracy. The average democracy is eight times wealthier. So you can only explain a tiny bit of the difference between the average democracy and the average non-democracy. You can only explain a tiny bit of their differences in wealth by the growth effect of democracy itself. That seems to be the case. So I do worry that as more non-democracies become rich, the uh, allure of democracies among other countries will uh, decline, um, which I think would be a shame. Uh, because, as I said, I do think we need democracy to avoid the worst excesses of government. Yeah, um, but but normatively, you you'd like things to look a little bit closer. Maybe China's not the right example, but closer to Singapore. Sure, I mean S- Singapore. I, I I mean, in a way, it has less democracy, but it, it just also just has a much better educated ruling class, you know, ruling elite. And those two things might be related, but they might not be related as well. I mean, Singapore is a city. Uh, rather than a country, it's very difficult to, I think, make big claims based upon, you know, one, one city in particular. But sure, I, I would like, to the extent that we can, I suppose I'm more of a technocrat. You know, I, I think the fact that the Fed is relatively independent 
of democratic procedure is probably a good thing overall. I think most economists would agree to that. And maybe we could have more institutions like that. So it has been suggested by uh, Bob Schiller and by other people that maybe we ought to have like a, a tax board, an independent tax board, which decides how taxes are allocated. So the Congress would say, we want to raise taxes of 20% of GDP, okay? And we want it to be, uh, you know, a mildly progressive system, you know, according to such and such a rule. And then how to do that would just be turned over entirely to an independent tax board. That, I think, is an interesting idea. I mean, uh, again, this goes back to part of what I was saying about wanting more experiments and that the space of governance procedures, which we have, is much less than the total space available. So it would be interesting to see an experiment like that. It is interesting, the, the idea of tech, technocracy or, or you know, uh, ruling by elites, has, uh, you know, as chronicled by Martin Gurry in his book on elites, has seemed to have fallen out of fashion, maybe, you know, post 2008, or even just, um, you know, sort of, just from a cultural perspective, it seems, uh, you know, less politically correct to, to say that certain groups know better than others when it comes to, you know, running a country or running an economy or, or, or even, you know, determining what's, what's important news. Yeah, I mean, the, the elites, it turns out, are, are often idiots, right? Uh, and, and, you know, the new media has allowed us to discover this. And I would only say, if you think the elites are idiots, wait till you see what the populists do. <laughs> yeah. And in certain fields sort of lend themselves more to idiots. I don't want to say idiots as much as we just, you know, they should have more humility because, you know, they're more art than science, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, I, Congress could sort of decide these big questions on, you know, how much taxes, right? Something which people can understand, right? How much should government be as a fraction of the economy, okay? And how progressive the tax system should be, right? But whether we should have a consumption tax, a value-added tax, you know, um, an income tax, a carbon tax, these are all technocratic questions, right? Congress has no, and the population, you know, the voters have no clue whatsoever. So I think the voters can answer some of these value questions, you know, how much and how progressive it should be. But as to how it should be done, that's completely a technocratic question. And perhaps it would be, you know, a good idea um, to leave that uh, to, you know, technocrats. Uh, this is part of going in the direction of Robin Hansen's idea of using prediction markets, his idea of futocracy of using prediction markets to make many more uh, decisions than we do now. This is a kind of similar like structure. Do you like Futarchy? Do you think that, that, do you agree with him that that could be a compelling? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's a space for it, right? You know, prediction markets are our best measure of predicting the future. You know, um, stock markets uh, do better than any other method we have come up with of making predictions on average. So if we can use these to make decisions, so the basic idea for the reader, for the listener not familiar, is to you know, have these markets, conditional markets. Um, if we pass this healthcare plan, what would be the effect on GDP? What would be the effect on life expectancy? Uh, if we pass this other plan, what would be the, the effect? And then you have betting markets, and uh, you use those to make decisions. You know, I, again, neither I nor Robin would say, um, let's start by doing it for choosing healthcare. But... You know, Robin has suggested a market in CEOs, okay? So 
you know, we know sometimes when a CEO uh, steps down, sometimes the, the, the stock uh, collapses, you know, falls a lot. Other times the stock goes up a lot, right? <laughs> um, and if we could predict that in advance, have two um, betting markets, what will be the stock price if the CEO quits or is fired? What would be the uh, stock price if the CEO uh, remains? And you would use that information to decide, should we keep the CEO or dump the CEO? Um, I think that would be great. That would be a great place to start. I was uh, watching an, a debate between Robin Hansen and Mencius Moldbug uh, on this exact uh, topic. And at one point, uh, Mencius says, uh, hey, hey, Robin, you're arguing deductively and I'm arguing inductively and inductively wins. Uh, and I think he's being somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But do, do you have a, uh, a framework for how to think about you know, when inductive, you know, from first principles versus deductive, uh, you know, from sort of looking at the data ma- makes most sense? Or how do you think about that within economics? Well, just on that very particular question, I think that's crazy because there's a huge amount of inductive evidence in favor of prediction markets. You know, we've had uh, prediction markets for elections for 25 years now, and they predict uh, better and with less variability than do polls, for example, or other methods. Um, so there's a lot of inductive evidence for prediction markets, uh, as well as taking evidence from, you know, from financial markets that, uh, you know, when the stock, when the a Challenger space shuttle uh, collapsed, uh, blew up, the stock market responded much more quickly and in exactly the direction they pinpointed the manufacturer of the O-rings, you know, way before the uh, Congress got around to holding hearings on, on the issue. So there's a huge amount of inductive evidence. On, on the, the bigger issue of inductive versus deductive, you know, I think deduction is useful and necessary in a complex world. You know, when deduction is all about causal uh, reasoning and when you have a billion things going on at the same time as we do in the world and you're not running a controlled experiment, okay, then you have no choice but to think deductively, because you're never going to be able to prove, you know, causality uh, without having some kind of random experiment, either a natural experiment, possibly, or, you know, a, a controlled experiment. And just often that's not, that's just not possible. So to make sense of a highly complex variable world in which you cannot control, you have to think deductively. Sense. We, we were talking earlier about you know, inequality, you know, there, there's a sort of crazy fringe theory uh, called bio-Leninism that, that makes some comparisons between today's left and the left in the time of Lenin. And it says that the left in the time of Lenin was sort of a, uh, you know, it puts it rather crudely, it says that it was a ploy for power by the left, uh, making sort of a pact for votes with the underclass by saying, hey, vote for us, we'll raise your wages and, and raise your status. And one of the reasons why that didn't work is that when uh, when the underclasses you know wages were raised, they then were no longer loyal to that uh, to that party. Whereas today they sort of flipped it from class to you know it's called biological Leninism. It's more biological characteristics, you know things like your gender or your race, things that you don't change with with your income. And so today the left says, hey, vote for us, and we'll raise your your status, and you'll you'll be you know loyal members for life. Do you think there's any, just on hearing that theory at first glance, any ex, you know, exploratory power to, to, to that theory, or does that sound kind of ridiculous? 
I'm not sure. I mean, I certainly see where the the argument is coming from. Um, there does certainly seem to be this appeal to intersectionality, and we're just going to combine every intersection uh, to produce. You know, what, what is it in mathematics when you, you we're going to create a union out of intersections, right? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know whether that's going to be successful or not. Um, I don't know. It's you know I do think the problem with it, right, is that when you make victimhood the grounds by which you are allocated resources, then everybody wants to be a victim and nobody wants to be a producer. And that, you know, in a very big picture sense is something which I, which I worry about. Is there anything you think could be done or, or, or should be done about that? I don't know. Tweet less. <laughs> yeah. We were talking a bit about uh, inequality, do you, do you worry about future employment as it relates to automation? And if yes, what should we do about it? You know, are you in favor of anything like uh, UBI or any, you know, jobs equivalent? Yeah. So let me give you, you know, the lawyer's answer, which is um, I don't think that it's happening. And if it is happening, this is what we should do about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not at all convinced that it's really happening. I mean, after the unemployment rate, as we speak, is like 3%. And if anything, as we talked about earlier, um, we're in the great stagnation. Uh, it's not that robots are taking over. It's not that we have too many robots. It's that we have too few. And, you know, productivity growth is not high. We're not seeing, you know, the robots I- I- in the data. And that may be more of a cause of uh, low wages. The lack of robots may be a bigger cause of low wages than this future uh, that people fear. So that's the part which I'm not, I'm not sure about, though it may be important in other countries, not because of the robots per se, but like in India. Uh, India needs to generate a million people every, a million new jobs every month, okay, just in order to keep up with their population growth. And because uh, manufacturing has become so much more efficient, that it's very difficult for them to move into the manufacturing sector the way that China did uh, before them and South Korea did before them and Japan before them. So that kind of route to a a developed economy status has been cut off for some of the still developing economies uh, like India. So I think India does have a problem which is like the automation problem, um, but it's quite different than the, you know, tech scenario, which people are worried about in the United States. Now, uh, to the second part, if, if I'm wrong, if this is a problem, what should we do about it? I would say uh, I'm a big fan of uh, augmenting humans, okay? So, you know, humans cannot, who, who can compete with the robots? And I say the only people who, compete with, who can compete with the robots are the cyborgs, okay? So uh, I'm kind of positive on our cyborg-oriented uh, future. So Elon Musk, you know, has got Neuralink connecting our brain. Uh, directly uh, to computer technologies. Um, Google Glass really is a way of connecting the brain through the visual cortex. Uh, even our phones are a way of connecting our brains to the worldwide internet using the visual cortex. And if we could do more of this, then I think the cyborgs would have a very good chance against the robots. Do you, do you think that uh, Robin Hansen had it right in Age of M's? So Robin has a very uh, peculiar uh, idea about the future robot world. He thinks that it won't be created by artificial intelligence, but rather 
by brain emulations, which are created by mapping out brains. So you take Einstein's brain and you slice it, you know, with an electron microscope and you map out all of the uh, neuron uh, connections and then you duplicate that in silicon. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem right to me, but on the other hand, you know, Robin has been uh, right about some things. Uh, you know, I, I like to say about Robin that 50% of his ideas are brilliant and 50% of his ideas are crazy, and I don't know which is which. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, you mentioned, you know, too few robots in some sense. That could be a future not enough technology innovation that may be a nice segue to, to uh, cost disease. And you've just written or co-written a, 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 a book about that. Can, can you talk a little bit about what cost disease is, uh, the bomb effect, what, what people misinterpret about it or misunderstand about it? And uh, what are the implications for, for what, what needs to be done? Sure. So there's this famous graph you can find, you know, going around the internet, which shows a bunch of goods which have declined in price since the 1950s. You know, home appliances have fallen in price by more than a factor of four. Telecommunications is way down. Cars are way down. At the same time, uh, some areas of the economy, the prices have gone way up. You know, things like healthcare and uh, education and professional services and other areas. And when you look at a graph like this, I think the very natural response is to say, well, where the prices have been going down, that's capitalism working. That's normal. That's what we expect. That is kind of, uh, that's the normal operations of a market economy is to drive prices down. And something, therefore, must be going wrong in these other sectors. There must be something, maybe it's unions or government or regulation. There's something peculiar. There's something uh, wrong about these other sectors. And kind of the, at the very biggest picture, the Bommel effect says that this may not be correct at all, um, that both of these things may be perfectly uh, normal and to be expected. And the basic idea of the Bommel effect is illustrated kind of with this famous kind of story, which might people probably have heard, but I'll mention it very briefly, is the string quartet story. So in 1826, it takes four people 40 minutes to produce the string quartet performance. In 2019, it takes four people 40 minutes to produce exactly the same performance. So there's been zero increase in productivity in the string quartet industry. At the same time, all these other industries have increased in productivity. So in 1826, average wages are a dollar an hour. In 2019, average wages are like $25 an hour. So those same four workers, their opportunity cost, the amount of money that they could be earning in other industries has gone up by a factor of 25. So you have to pay them 25 times more today, even though they're producing exactly the same good. So it's not surprising that when you have some industries are growing in productivity faster than other industries, the industries where productivity is growing more slowly, those prices must rise. And there's nothing necessarily bad about this because the fact that productivity is increasing means we can actually afford more of both goods. It doesn't mean that we're poor or worse off. Both goods are actually more affordable. And there's kind of a, a deep but fundamental point, simple but fundamental point. And that is that prices are always relative prices and prices represent opportunity costs. So the price of education, for example, is how many cars could we get or how many 
if we want, if we want a little bit more education, how many cars do we have to give up? And that has gone up because we become more productive at making cars. So the price of cars, the price of education is an opportunity cost. And naturally, it has become more expensive to produce more education precisely because to do that, we have to give up more cars than before because we've become more productive at producing cars. But that's actually a good thing. And just to close, what this means is that all real prices cannot fall. Okay, when you look at the chart and you see some prices are going up and some prices are going down, you think, oh, the, the, the normal thing would be for all prices to fall. That cannot happen. In a market economy, prices are opportunity costs and all opportunity costs cannot fall. You know, all relative prices cannot fall. So over time, you, we cannot have all prices falling. So the Bommel effect says that the fact that the price of education and healthcare is going up may simply be a consequence of the fact that other industries have simply become more productive. So uh, with the 15 minutes remaining, I want to close with sort of two, uh, two broad uh, games. The, fir- the first one is uh, if you were sort of dictator of, uh, of America, or it doesn't have to be America specifically, how, how would you, and you had a magic wand, how would you reshape cer- certain industries? So the first one would be uh, academia and the university as we, as we currently understand it. What do you think are the, the biggest challenges? And how would you, uh, if you could do anything, how would you, reshape them? So I don't know how to reshape academia for sure, but there is something which which, which I've been struck with. And that is at the turn of the last, two centuries ago, I guess, there was a big increase in the number of universities. So Stanford was formed from the Robert Barron era, right? So you had Stanford formed in 1885 and Rockefeller creates the University of Chicago in 1890. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is created in 1900. Okay, Vanderbilt, about the same time, 1873, I think. So you had these robber barons create all these new universities, right? And I think it's time for today's robber barons, if I can call them that, even though I don't think that they're robbers. Today's barons, today's productivity barons. Uh, but I'd love to see Elon Musk uh, start a university, right? Uh, Peter Thiel, it would be ironic. Uh, yeah. But for Peter Thiel to start a university. Or Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Um, I've also suggested, you know, Apple should buy a university, uh, not to create a university for Apple employees, but to create a university for other people. So I, I would like to see more experimentation in academia. And as these guys are uh, getting on, maybe they should uh, emulate the robber barons of the past, the Stanfords, the, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts, and create a new set of universities. It, it seems like it'd be a great uh, recruiting tool. I, I wonder why not. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, and there's, there's a, again, there's a big space of governance procedures, uh, which, uh, you, you know, we could, we, could, we could explore. But the only people doing this is a small group is Minerva, uh, who have created a very interesting university system where the students um, spend uh, time in significant amounts of time in each of four different countries. They move around from India, uh, Great Britain, the United States. They spend like a year in each country. And the professors at this university, they follow their, their, um, uh, their teaching plans are very structured. So uh, they don't get to simply just teach whatever you want. Uh, they're vetted and they're structured and they are designed uh, much more than at contemporary universities. So I think that's a very interesting model. And maybe somebody like uh, Elon Musk could expand 
uh, that uh, model a lot. Actually, Elon Musk is doing it for his own kids, right? So his own kids go to a uh, private school of his own creation, uh, elementary school, and you know he's, he's, he's let in some other parents as well. Um, and maybe when his own kids come to university age, he'll expand into universities. Yeah. How about the FDA? So the FDA, I kind of have my standard story is that, um, look, people don't see the trade-off, right? So more safety uh, is great, but it means that it takes longer and longer to produce a new drug. And the more trials and the bigger the trials you require, the bigger the cost of producing new drugs. And that means we get fewer new drugs. And when we have fewer new drugs, people die who would have lived. And we don't see that alternative side of the coin uh, enough. Uh, there is an invisible graveyard, an invisible graveyard filled with people who would have lived had new drug production been higher. And we don't see that side of the trade-off enough. How about healthcare more broadly? You know, healthcare more broadly, uh, you know, I say every single theory about you know, why healthcare is screwed up is true because healthcare is screwed up in every single possible way. And I, to be honest, just kind of throw up my hands. Um, it is just so messed up, particularly in the United States. I don't have a, uh, by any means, any good solution. I do think we should spend much, much more time thinking about uh, innovation than we should thinking about distribution. So, like with healthcare, all of our debates over Obamacare, you know, whether you're for it or against it, they're almost all on who gets, who, who loses and, and, and who gains, right? We take from Medicare and we give to Medicaid. Uh, we take from Medicare and we give to somewhere else. Or, you know, distribution, it's all about, you know, insurance and uh, providing more people. And <clears throat> that's fine, but I think we should spend much, much more time about pushing the technological frontier on cancer research. I would far rather see... Um, us expand the um, NIH. Let's double the size of the NIH just, just to start. And then we can talk about distribution. But if we could create uh, a few more new drugs every year, uh, better cancer, um, better for heart disease, if we could combine those, if we could combat those diseases better, that would be worth far more than uh, better distribution today. How about GDP? I'm, I'm curious if you think there's any way to improve it. And I'm curious, you know, some people critique, uh, they, they you know, use uh, Goodhart's law and say that, you know, the immense focus on GDP has sort of uh, had counter effects. I mean, I think this is sort of nonsense in the, in the sense that, of course, GDP is flawed, but <clears throat> there's no reason. And it's just not true that we focus on GDP to the expense of all else. I mean, if we did that, we would say, you know, no one is allowed any leisure. I mean, we can increase GDP easily by reducing leisure, but nobody thinks that would be a good idea. So, you know, I mean, everyone knows this, that GDP is flawed, but nobody says that, oh, because the arts are not included enough in GDP, you know, we can't fund the arts. Uh, I mean, so I just don't think the, this idea that we are beholden to the number and that our economic elites just focus on the number and are driven by the number. I just don't think that's just simply not true. This is not the way the world works. And it's pretty obvious that GDP is not the only thing we should think about. How about we, uh, the, the political system? We've talked a little bit about it, but can you unpack a little bit more why, why democracy doesn't make good decisions and perhaps you can reference you know, public choice theory? 
Sure. I mean, there's, <clears throat> there's a huge number of reasons. I mean, you know, starting with Arrow's theorem, it's just very difficult to aggregate. In fact, it's impossible to aggregate individual preferences in a way which creates a rational social preference. We should expect, in other words, Arrow's theorem tells us that we should expect democracies to make inconsistent, arbitrary decisions because they're going to be, when you aggregate preferences, what you get is the preferences of a madman. There, there's no reason to expect consistency there. That's kind of a big picture. And then there's just, you know, hundreds of reasons why uh, democracies make poor decisions. Uh, rational ignorance and rational irrationality, um, precisely because your chance of swinging the election by your vote is so low that people vote their emotions and they don't bother investigating or thinking very clearly about the consequences of their vote. Um, that's just a natural consequence of democracy. And I would just, uh, you know, reference if anybody, you know, wants a great book on this, uh, look at the uh, book of my colleague, uh, Brian Kaplan, The Myth of the Selfish Voters, a great introduction to public choice. I recommend that highly. You know, the, uh, Glenn Weil, also an economist, uh, author of, of Radical Markets, you know, he has this critique of, of, uh, of Tyler and, and you and other you know, similar economists where he says that you know, value too much uh, economic growth, uh, or, or not enough, rather, uh, social innovation. And he talks about how you know, standard capitalism leaves out a lot of actual value creation. That's why we need new types of markets like common ownership, self-assessed tax, which you know, make asset values reflect true use values and things like quadratic finance or liberal radicalism, you know, his invention, which, which price public goods. And the example he gives is, is think about news. If you discover you know, verifiable proof that Donald Trump takes daily orders from Putin, you'd make less money than if you had an incredible cat video. And that's the sort of signal that you know, capitalism does take all, into account all, all value creation. How might you respond to that? So in general, I, you know, I spoke at uh, one of the um, liberal radicalism um, uh, meetings. I spoke on Open Borders, and you know, I plugged it on uh, you know, Marginal Revolution. So I'm in favor of all these kind of experiments, and Glenn has some interesting mechanisms. You know, where I disagree with Glenn is you know, he really wants to remake the world. And, uh, you know, he really, he wants to get, abandon capitalism, not communism, not this, not that, but create, you know, his entirely own thing from new foundations, right? So he is radical. He's too radical. <laughs> you know, I hate to say that uh, because I like to be radical too, but I think this is just crazy. And so I'm all for, you know, uh, trying out these ideas uh, in a corporation and let's try them in, the ex let's do some experiments uh, in, in markets. I think that's great. Um, let's have some city councils, but let's not think that we're going to re remake the world. I'm more Hayekian than that. I have more humility uh, than that. So as long as we do this in a voluntary way, uh, capitalism is completely open to experimentation. So if we do this in a voluntary way, I'm all for it. But I think if we try and impose some of Glenn's ideas from the top down, it'll be a disaster, just like every central planning disaster in history has been a disaster. And I think Glenn would say he's in favor of it being bottoms up too. Uh, but is, is, is the, the crux of the difference that you guys might have uh, underlying these different uh, conclusions is that perhaps you, you think the world is, is better than he thinks it is right now. And, and, and also that uh, you have less confidence that, you know, these changes would have the desired results that he seeks. Is, is that basically the crux of the difference of opinion? Uh, no, I, I, I do think it is more the top down versus the uh, bottom up. Uh, Glenn says he's uh, bottom up, but it actually to make, you know, many of his mechanisms work, that's not possible. 
uh, if you want to change, you know, to his tax system, it's got to be uh, top down. I don't see any other way of doing it. Uh, you know, his approach to immigration is also very top down. Um, so I'm, I'm more focused on convince somebody to adopt this idea in a corporation. Let's see how it works. Right. Well, what would you change about the tax code if you could wave one? Oh, again, yeah. I mean, the, I, I would refer back to, you know, some of these ideas about just make depoliticizing the mechanism, the process by which we decide on how the tax code uh, is uh, developed. Um, so rather than having any specific thing, I mean, I could say a consumption tax or a carbon tax, you know, that's all fine. But I, I, I would actually be more interested in experimenting with the process and kind of the technocratic solution I offered earlier might be one way of doing that. Okay. With our last uh, last five minutes, we'll, we'll end with a segment of, I'll, I'll say a thinker or someone who, who, who you know well or you know their ideas, and you tell me uh, where you have a difference of opinion or, or disagreement with them. And if, if none uh, come to mind, then, then just pass. First is uh, Tyler Cowan. So Tyler and I agree on a lot, but we have very different uh, kind of approaches to questions. So I once wrote a blog post on how to tell the difference between a, a post written by Tyler and a post written <laughs> by me. And I said, if there's a simple question with a complex answer, that's a Tyler post. Uh, if there's a complex question with a simple answer, that's an Alex post. Okay. And I actually think both of these methodologies, you know, have uh, value uh, to them. Uh, you know, we live in a complex world that it's good, as Tyler does, to look at things, not just from the point of view of economics, but from the point of view of history and law and behavioral, you know, uh, considerations and try and come at it from many different angles. It's also valuable to do what I think I try and do, which is kind of the economist, the Ricardian vice, which is trying to slice away complexity and, and get to the heart of the issue, get to the crux of the issue. So we often begin at quite different points, but then if you sort of force Tyler, okay, that's the complex answer, but you know, what do you think happens on average? What do you think is most likely to happen? If you kind of, he doesn't like to do this, but if you, if you <laughs> force him to, to simplify, to boil it down, okay, what about now or this time place and this particular point in history? Uh, and similarly, if, if you force me to complexify things, uh, well, what about, you know, taking into account this? Or what about, would it work, you know, in every country or at every time period? No, it might not, more here than there. And together, you know, we come to uh, wh where we often agree. And I think actually, if I, if I may be so bold, that's one reason why our textbook um, is good. <laughs> because uh, I want to simplify and uh, boil things down. And then Tyler comes as, oh, but we have to add this point. Because that's not always going to be quite true. And together, we create what I think is a very good textbook. And have your exp uh, collective experiments with Marginal Revolution University gone the way you'd, you'd expected or, or hoped? Or what have you learned in that process or, or what's yet to come? So I think I've learned two things. One, it's just been incredible to get emails from people around the world thanking uh, Tyler and I for producing this resource because they don't have anything like it. And we regularly get emails, you know, from Pakistan, from India, Korea, all over the world, um, students using these resources. That's been very gratifying. Um, the other thing which which was sort of remarkable and was an early discovery is, you know, we put up um, transcripts uh, of our uh, lectures uh, in English. And then we discovered that, you know, YouTube automatically translates our English transcripts into, you know, like a hundred other languages uh, around the world. And so that was like an incredible benefit that we got for free. And moreover, 
when Googlebot DeepMind and they improved their translation algorithms, suddenly Marginal Revolution University got a lot better. So this illustrated to me the importance of tying a stagnant field like education. If you can tie it to a field which is growing in power, you know, like computers and algorithms and the internet, uh, then you could create something which piggybacks uh, off all of those increases in growth and power. So Marginal Revolution University Internet Education, I think, is going to grow because it naturally is going to become better as computers and internet and software become better. Tyler also told me to ask you how your Canadian uh, background has shaped you. I think Tyler can answer that better than I can. Um, I guess I'm. I guess if I had to say one thing, I've always been a little wobbly on uh, guns. So that would be, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, I, I don't have quite the American, uh, the American libertarian feeling for guns. Uh, how about Brian Kaplan? Where do you disagree with him? You know, Brian. Brian and I agree a lot, though. We've disagreed on uh, the Bommel effect, which I talked about earlier. Um, he takes a much more kind of libertarian that the reason why education and healthcare have gone up in price is uh, government intervention. I would be very happy if that were true, but I don't find it in the data. And um, I think that the Bommel effect is better at explaining this kind of 50, 60, 80, 100 year trend. I mean, these trends have been going on for a very long period of time. So uh, we, we've more recently disagreed on that point. How about Russ Roberts? Russ is great. He's become a skeptic of everything. So, you know, his, his response is that we can't, is that we can't know. We just don't know things. And I'm, I'm more, I have a more positive view of what economics can tell us than Russ does at this point in time. Uh, Larry Summers. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of Larry in that he is a liberal economist and he does not abandon either of those two things. And I think that's really uh, impressive. Uh, what I mean is that he has all of the liberal uh, uh, viewpoints or the goals, but when it comes to, you know, rent control or the minimum wage or, you know, industrial planning, he remains an economist and he's willing to speak back to a political authority and say, you know, economics says this is not a good idea. So I, I think he is an ideal uh, liberal economist in, in that sense. And I give him kudos for that. Greg Mankiw. We have a better textbook than Greg does. <laughs> Mises or, or Rothbard? Uh, Mises, Mises or Rothbard. Uh, yeah, they were very skeptical about externalities and public goods. And I'm more uh, open, uh, and as well as to math in, e in economics. Uh, any of the thoughts of the intellectual dark web? I, I mean, I'm really glad those guys are out there. Let me, let me put it yeah. that way. So I'm really happy that uh, Jordan Peterson and Weinstein and uh, those guys are um, pushing uh, these issues, and not just from a conservative or libertarian point of view, but also from a left uh, point of view as well. Free speech, I think, is very important. And they are keeping the Overton window uh, open, more open than it would be. And so in that respect, um, I'm very much in favor of what they're doing. But, but Paul Krugman. So Paul, let me say two things about Paul. You know, in one way, uh, Krugman and I uh, are almost in perfect agreement. Uh, only marginally different, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, Paul says, you know, Republicans, they're corrupt, they're incompetent, they're unprincipled, they're dangerous to a civil society. And I agree with that entirely. I would only change one word. I would change the word Republicans to politicians. 
And if you would, if Paul could only be convinced of doing that and coming over to the libertarian side, we'd be in a complete agreement. But he's much more partisan um, than I am. And even though I worry about, you know, Republicans more than I do Democrats at this particular point of time, I think the larger incentives is that we all need to be worried about uh, politicians rather than any one particular party. Let me also say about Paul, although I agree with him a lot of the time, um, sometimes he just drives me uh, absolutely batty. Um, <laughs> you know, he just says things which I think are just just so wrong. Uh, you know, his latest uh, column, um, which to be fair was written as a column sort of 50 years in the future. So maybe it was a little bit tongue in cheek. But in his latest column, he said that um, life extension, he was, the column was pretending that, you know, uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel were 100 years of age and still, you know, fit and uh, fiddle and, and you know, uh, still uh, major players in society. And Krugman said, life extension for a privileged few is by its nature a socially destructive technology, and the time has come to ban it. Now, to me, this is, this is just evil, right? This is like something out of Ayn Rand's uh, anthem, uh, that it's evil to live longer than your brothers, and all must be sentenced to death so that none live more than their you know, allocated time. I mean, I think it's evil if we accept even the premise of his argument, which was that these technologies are very expensive, and I think even on that ground, it's evil to kill people just so that they don't live longer than average. But more, perhaps even, you know, a bigger point is that I think these technologies of life extension are the most important things that people are working on, some of the most important things that people are working on today. And the billionaires are doing a, an incredible service to humanity by investing in these radical ideas and pushing the frontier and that is going to have spillover effects on everyone. So I expect that if we ever reach, if we are to reach the singularity, um, it will be because the billionaires are uh, getting us there uh, earlier and faster. And they're going to be the ones pushing us to the singularity. And everybody uh, will benefit by these life, life extension technologies. So uh, I agree with Paul uh, quite a bit, more than you might expect. But sometimes he just says things which are... Absolutely evil. <laughs> what is interesting, I mean, Paul is so accomplished and yet also so controversial. It'll be interesting to see, you know, 50 years from now, what, what his legacy uh, will be. Yeah, and, and whether his legacy will be more as an economist or as a, you know, a partisan uh, pundit. And to give him his due, he has been a very, very successful um, partisan pundit, more than anybody since uh, Milton Friedman. Wow. Do, do you think that... Um behavioral economics will have uh, a stronger legacy or, or have more power in the future or less? I think behavioral economics is here to stay. Um, the problem is, is that how does it generalize? Um, you know, we find the, that, you, you know, these, these uh, nudges, they work differently in different people at different times and at different places, right? Um, so, you know, what is there other than to say that the world is noisy and people don't behave, you know, exactly like the rational models uh, say they do. Um, that's a little bit unfair because there are systematic ways in, in which people deviate. And I think the best case for behavioral economics has been to say that in some of these decisions, like your retirement account decisions, 
you don't get to make these decisions again and again and again, and you don't get to see, you know, the consequences of different decisions. Uh, you only get to make the decision of, you know, how much to put in your retirement account. Most people only make this decision sort of once or twice, right? And so these behavioral economics, um, they can have systematic effects on these decisions, which we don't make very often, which, which nevertheless have very big consequences. It's very hard to be rational about these choices where we don't have feedback. You know, we don't get feedback, very good feedback on who to marry or uh, uh, how much to save for our retirement. By the time we get feedback, it's too late in both cases. So uh, for those types of decisions, I think behavioral economics uh, can alert us to these systematic biases. And one of the reasons why I like economics is because I use it to try and overcome those systematic biases, though I don't know how successful I've been. Uh, that's, uh, that seems like a good note to close. I don't know if you your time. We've gone over. Uh, my guest today has been Alex Tabarak. Alex, any uh, last-minute plugs for people who want to go deeper in your work? Uh, uh, where might you point them, and what's upcoming? Uh, well, uh, Tyler and I both blog regularly at Marginal Revolution, uh, Tyler more than I, uh, but you'll see me there as well. And of course, Marginal Revolution University, our online platform for economics education, has two entirely free courses on the principles of microeconomics and the principles of macroeconomics. Those are university level uh, courses, and they're entirely free available to anybody in the world. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much for, for joining. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great. Thank you very much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 